The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Sound Girls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. Interviews will be available publicly in our Living History Project and for educational use and research. Hi, thanks for joining me today. I am the chapter head for Sound Girls in Alberta. My name is Christina Milanusic. Sound Girls' mission is to create a supportive community for women in audio and music production. We provide the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers while inspiring and empowering the next generation of women in audio. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Today I will be interviewing Teresa Leonard, who is an internationally recognized music producer and audio educator. She has worked in the audio industry for over 30 years, holds degrees in both music and education, and has served as the Audio Engineering Society's president and education chair. Please welcome. Hey. So welcome to the Sound Girls Living History Project. It's a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans Projects to seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Today I am joined by Teresa Leonard. She has worked in the audio industry for over 30 years and holds degrees in both music and education. She served as Audio Engineering Society President and Education Chair. So welcome, Teresa Leonard. If you could please introduce yourself and, and your title, um, that would be wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's very nice to be interviewed for Sound Girls, Christina, and I'm so happy that you asked me to do this. Um, title right now, I'm freelance. I have been in the past director, executive producer, music producer, consultant, all of those things. I've had a very varied career. Um, the one thing I will mention, you mentioned I have degrees in music and audio, which are both undergrad degrees, but then I also have the, uh, a Master of Sound Recording degree from McGill University that I did later. Um, so that's my background. And uh, sometimes when 30 or 40 years have gone by since you started your first um, job in music, uh, it, it's hard to know where to start. To, um, to talk about what I've done, but I'll give it a shot. Um, so having studied music when I was younger, I was, uh, I was a pianist and I also did some work in education and was offered a teaching job actually in Newfoundland, my first uh, teaching job. So I took that versus continuing uh, study as a pianist because I would be paid quite well. And um, Following that year, I decided to get an education degree, um, not knowing that that would serve me very well in the future. And then I, I taught in French and English schools in Eastern Canada for a few years. And um, I come from a long line of teachers. My mom was an educator for many years and one of my great mentors. And um, a colleague of mine actually told me about the program at McGill University and that's not something I say very often, and, and nor have I thanked him over the years. I, I haven't seen him forever, but, um, you know, we all have um, 
chances are there's serendipity in all our lives. And he told me about this program in audio. It's not something that I had studied um, or looked into. So when I did, I decided to go ahead and, and apply and go to McGill University, having been a teacher of music uh, with some professional background. And so that was a, a great experience um, because we're talking about sound girls and women in audio. Um, I, I was in, in a program I did notice with mostly men. And um, there were a few women in the undergraduate program there. I, uh, I did um, an undergraduate um, a couple years, actually. I spread the coursework out because I was dealing with electronic music, electroacoustics, math, psychoacoustics, all kinds of things, introduction to sound recording. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is all new to me. But obviously, it, it, uh, it, it was just me being a bit, you know, afraid of, of all of the, the coursework. Um, but uh, I also continued my piano practice at the time. So it was a long master's. And then I, I was one of four people originally to be accepted into the master's program. Uh, it was a great experience. And um, I was the only woman in my class. Although I, it, it never did bother me, or I didn't think much of it at the time. I also, to go backwards, grew up with all brothers and a very strong mom. So um, it was all fine. And um, when I left McGill, I was offered a job in um, post-production in Canada. And I did that for a little while. It was also a very good experience uh, working for a TV show. Um, but then an opportunity came up... Um, um, at the University of Iowa, and so in music, and I decided that's where I needed to be um, because I still had a lot to learn, and that was my strength, um, working with musicians and um, working in music. So one thing I've forgotten is when I left McGill, I was accepted at the BAMP Center uh, in a work-study program that I ended up growing and running for over 20 years, but I, I did not begin that program. And that's something that is, is, um, is misunderstood and people give me credit for starting it. And I did not, uh, that was David Kelm, who was also a McGill grad first brought me from, uh, McGill to Banff. I had planned to go for three months and stayed two years. Uh, he was interested in my thesis topic. You've asked about that. Um, we were the last class at McGill to have to do a thesis because there was so much coursework um, interjected into that program. <clears throat> and, um, and so I had to go to work and write a thesis when I left McGill. And so that took a few years. I started it at Banff in my internship program where I went for three months and stayed two, uh, two years because I was hired in summers to work with musicians and to do recordings as one person hired to do that. And, and, um, so I guess if you do a good job where you are as a student, then you might be hired back. Um, <clears throat> and so I finished that thesis while I was at the University of Iowa, uh, working with Lowell Cross, who, who built that audio program. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and I got to work with Hancher Auditorium, an amazing theater group of people. Um, and so I got to record some things like the Takash String Quartet at the theater, um, was involved when, when the Kronos Quartet came through. Um, Prince, I think, premiered things like uh, Purple Rain there. So lots of wonderful experiences and working with the musicians um, and staff at the University of Iowa 
I was also mentoring a lot of the students who took a course with Lowell. My title was recording engineer, so I mentored these people. And a lot of those those people went on and did great things. Um, not that I'm responsible for all of their work, but we do have an impact on people, uh, you know, and just like this person who told me about McGill had an impact on me. So there were many people from Iowa that went on and did great things. Um, then I was invited by Isabel Ralston, who was the music director at uh, the Banff Center at the time, classical music, uh, to come back to Banff and to grow a program that they had just titled Music and Sound. So, and that was uh, Robert Rosen who had, uh, um, who had come up with that idea and he worked in the music area as a composer. And so I had the great opportunity, having, having been to Banff and seen what an international destination that was, not only for people in the arts, uh, it was a center for um, performing arts, for literary arts, for indigenous arts, a center for conferences. So there were hotels and meal plans and everything else there. Very international. So this was a real opportunity for me having my education background, strong mentoring, I said, from my mom and also from Vyaslav Ostek at McGill University, I watched the way he stood up for audio as an art form. And that's what kept me interested in it for so long. So I always stood up for audio um, and all of the participants as artists. And I um, was able to follow um, the program the way it had been set up at, at the music department uh, so that we brought in guest faculty and brought in artists from around the world in audio, same as with music. And uh, because Banff <clears throat> grew to deal not only with uh, classical music, which was very strong, but also jazz, big jazz program, and in, which became um, um, another name, but um, a contemporary music composition. And, and we dealt with... Um, an indie band festival first started at BAM Center in large part due to the audio program because we had great studios, but also um, and nice halls to um, work with and record in. Um, so people learned how to record acoustic music in acoustic spaces, which is um, not always stressed enough in recording programs, especially within music schools. We had wonderful studios where we got to work with um, on film scoring projects with artists of all genres, um, with visual artists, etc. So even though there was a very, very strong um, focus on music recording, which was, you know, our, our real strength at Banff uh, and still is, um, we, we could do all, many other things. And I was able to grow... <clears throat> the program by um, actually through my work that I got into with the Audio Engineering Society uh, as education chair and as um, chairing some of the education events at different conferences. I got to meet so many students from Canada, the U.S., internationally, and then went to speak to some of those programs while I was in Europe. And so we had people from advanced Tonemeister programs from Paris, Poland, Detmold, Berlin, um, other programs in France, like Louis Lumière, which was more film in uh, concentration, um, McGill, New York, Peabody, all kinds of, of music recording programs, also programs that dealt 
uh, with post-production. We brought people from the Vancouver Film School. We brought people from the real world who had um, not gone through schooling, as happened in early on in audio. Uh, and in one case, I had someone who came from high school from down the road uh, in Banff and went on to win many Grammys. And that person basically got all of his training at Banff Center because, um, you know, he was just such a talent. And so all that to say, I really believe in a distributed teaching model. And not only for Banff and internship programs. I mean, I forewent for... I, I said I would forego some staff in order to have more money to bring in outside people from academia and industry. And then when I need it, you know, finally you get more staff. But this uh, created a really rich program. So you could bring in faculty from academia and industry uh, to either work directly on projects with students. And I call them students, but they're work studies or practicum participants. These are people with skill. But coming to Banff to get more professional experience in a great environment, safe environment, being mentored, knowing that someone has their back. There are no stupid questions. And um, uh, yeah, we just, we had, I'm very grateful. I mean, Banff Center, yes, I brought something to Banff uh, because of my background in music education and audio, but um, being able to work at such uh, an international destination, um, especially with the level of musician we got to record there. That's something that doesn't always happen at a university or a school. So that was wonderful. And the adjunct faculty was another big plus. And um, students coming from the real world, from many different levels, you know, from high school to PhD programs um, and interacting with each other. My job a lot of the time was to be a facilitator to help put the right people on the right projects to ensure if we needed more professionalism that I brought in a producer or an engineer that they could in turn work with. And those people always knew that they were invited to Banff to give back. And so, um, you know, we really instilled a professional professionalism, not only for the audio group, but um, for musicians and other artists to respect the, the audio team as, as equal artists and um, to respect our time, to be on time for sound checks. And so <clears throat> I guess I would say in, in 30 years of uh, being able to uh, work with a variety of incredible artists in recording studios, um, I also had the opportunity to grow this program over 20 years at the BAMP Center and one thing I will say is I've seen over and over again the importance of recording technology, not only for um, audio engineer and producers, um, aspiring audio engineers and producers, but for musicians themselves. And what we were able to um, offer a musician is something that um, I think programs today have to continue um, to do and build in as part of their program. So everybody's speaking the same language. Technology is growing, as you know, and, you know, with what's happened with our pandemic, um, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these recordings we see online now, 75% of the work is in post-production, um, people trying to fix it. And, um, you know, we still want to ensure that we have quality of sound and that people understand the importance of learning microphone technique, understanding equipment, understanding new technologies, 
And today, of course, students need to know audio, video, and, um, you know, be an artist themselves. So it's, it's quite an exciting field to work in. It's kept me young, I think. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I will say that the AES, you know, having uh, mentioned AES through my work in band, uh, is really uh, a, a great a great society to become a member of as as a young person, and um, you know the the top end, the high end, with you know the people that have made the biggest um, impact on our industry are, are a lot of them are always there at these conferences or conventions, and now you can find them online. And I've noticed a lot of things are free uh, lately, and I just. I still take in as much as I can because I, what always excited me about um, what I was able to build was that um, this was continuing education, not only for myself and for, for the participants in the program, but for the staff. And so everybody grew at the same time. And um, it, it's a nice way to go to work and it's a, a nice way to live. It's time flew, but uh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what I've, I've left there. And I, I, I'm also very grateful um, because of um, Banff being an international you know, destination with all of its uh, um, facilities like hotels and dining hall, et cetera, I was able to put on conferences. So, for example, when I saw a gap in the program where there might be two weeks where there wasn't a lot of recording or a lot of artists in-house or... You know, I use that as a time to bring in adjunct faculty to put on seminars where we could bring in outside people to work with the small group of, you know, participants at Banff. There's always, I, I don't know, around eight to 10 people. Um, so they got to take part in that conference. And by, you know, hosting a conference, you were able to open it up to other people as well. Um, I also started recording residencies there, which was a real, you know, a lot of business involved with that, but um, it was important that if we were going to do professional recordings for people that we charged um, an appropriate amount and that we took in projects that weren't competing uh, with commercial studios nearby, but that made sense for BAMP Center and allowed us to do professional recording and editing within a very supervised um, area. I mean, it was wonderful for musicians to go or any artist for a recording residency or, or a writing residency or wherever where they're not having to think about cooking their meals. And um, yeah, just such an international group of people. And um, the uh, participants or work studies in audio, uh, you know, learned more from each other than they did the faculty I bring in. I say that a lot, I know, but it... Uh, it's true because coming from different cultures and there is uh, such strength and diversity. And, uh, so I'll let you ask a question now. Cause I, I've, I did this for so long. I can go on about it, but it, it's yeah, just, better if you direct me. <laughs> absolutely fascinating. I'm just, I'm just so impressed by all you've achieved and in, in your career and, and thankful for, for what you've done. And one of the things I'm very interested in knowing is like, in, was there a person or experience early in your life that got you, you know, interested in audience or like sparked, sparked that, sparked that interest in audio? Like, was it piano? Was it your mom? Like what, what, what really got you? Well, I think I wanted, I mean, I was a, a good educator. I, I loved the students and I had a real rapport with them. I think I started, you know, to be honest, when you asked me a few questions when we first talked about doing this, I didn't want to think too much about it, <laughs> but uh, 
I thought I did a lot of um, teaching in a sense when I was younger. I, I taught piano when I was in high school to other people. And um, so that was, you know, without realizing it, it was a way to make a little money, but um, it also taught me about teaching and empathy and, and working with younger people. Um, I also did a lot of babysitting. And so, you know, I, I um, and I worked a lot as a child. I mean, I started working as soon as I could at 16. So I had a lot of experience before I went into music and education. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a typical, um, I didn't know about the program initially. I wasn't somebody who was drawn initially to technology. I certainly can learn it. And I, I used all of the editing programs up until Pyramix, the one I should know, um, our Pro Tools. But um, um, in my music degree, we had listening classes. And for some in history, and I, for some reason, I... Uh, I did really well on these tests and it wasn't that I was better than anyone or understood the music and the composers better than other people in my class. I think I had a good ear. I, I somehow me memorized the sound. So I was able to identify pieces that way. And when I was teaching music, um, what always surprised me and I taught from grades one through nine band and, you know, choirs and elementary and, in, in French and um, the you know students they they will give you what you expect of them and so they could you know tell the difference if I did something in classical for example they'd know if it was Bach or Beethoven if I this ages me but drop the needle and um, I realized I liked the sound of um, certain recordings and not the sound of others so then when I was told about this program I found it intriguing because my colleague at the time knew that I, I wasn't necessarily wanting to continue teaching music, but I wanted to do something with what I'd done. And um, so that opened up, um, yeah, quite a surprising area. I mean, when I was first accepted into the master's program itself, I had to really think about, do I, do I want to do this? Do I want to go down this road? Because I had also become interested in other subjects at McGill. But uh, anyhow, I did it, and I ended up with great experience and... Uh, and I was able to help people um, find work in the industry and help put people together and, um, you know, use my background to, um, I think, make a difference for, for those participants. And in turn, they gave me so much, you know, when you're mentoring, you get so much back as well. And you learn a lot. So um, I was really a caretaker, a facilitator, and um, I was there a lot. I worked a lot, you, you know. When you have a program and people don't show up to see what somebody is doing, there might not be this uh, this intense awareness by the participants to be careful because somebody may be dropping in on you <laughs> to see how it's going. So, well, I think your thesis, like I, I read it a few weeks ago, and it's still in it, for me. Uh, I it clarified a, a bunch of things because I think it's called time delay compensation. Comp compensation of distributed multiple microphones in recording and I'm experimental evaluation I remember the title because uh it was Dr. Buzdek at, at McGill that uh <laughs> that helped me with that title and he was very good with titles that's like I I haven't done I facilitated a lot of research at Banff as well because people would say oh you have such great listeners can we universal audio or, or former PhD participant 
independent from Oxford, they wanted to come to Banff and do, um, you know, research because of the environment. So it, again, all of those things helped us grow. But you're asking about the the thesis. Yes, I had to write a thesis, and it, it ended up being a great thing. And I, uh, while I was in Iowa, I met John Ergel while I was writing this, and he was very complimentary and said to me, "You know, you should present this at AES." And I thought, "Oh my gosh, AES! I hadn't even been there yet. I was a little intimidated." So, you know, what I can say um, to anyone that might be watching this, but especially to women, is. Now, I started later in audio. I was into my 20s and uh, well into them and because I'd had a career ahead of time. And I was nervous about presenting something in technology at AES, and I did. And I had, you know, people say wonderful things. And I learned quickly that, um, you know, you can, you can break those barriers. And I ended up being president of the AES through my work in education because of the work I did at Banff, because of... So it, it trickles, you know, down. I think a lot of times today with education, people have this idea that they have to go all the way through and get, you know, some titles so that they can make more money or teach at a certain, or, you know, I, I think if you, I was lucky that I followed my passion and, and um, let it take me where it would. And, um, you know, you're going to run into things, but basically I've, I've had, um, you know, a very, a very good career, which I'm very grateful for. And I'm now at the, um, I'm now working at Aspen, but wasn't this summer due to the pandemic. Uh, the audio program itself was canceled, although they, they have moved into video, which is really, really nice because everyone, if, if we don't do that, we're going to be left behind. And so um, I had the great pleasure last summer, uh, 2019, my first year at Aspen to work for an incredible uh, international, mainly classical, but contemporary music festival. I don't like the word classical because it delineates so many other things. And there were many, many great compositions that happened there. But that's a place where there's less time to train and work alone in the studios. People have to hit the ground running when they arrive. Um, still, I would love to be able to build more of a, a faculty layer to Aspen in the future if we could even if it's bringing in a producer to work with a director um, so that we do more recording. And, and, and again, as I said, you know, what musicians gain by working with a producer is different than working with a coach. And so last year I gave a paper called the producer's educator um, at the art of record production. And uh, I believe really strongly this is uh this is something that benefits musicians. I saw how it benefited hundreds and hundreds, if not more, of musicians uh, at Banff over the years. And many became interested in audio and vice versa. I also saw how audio built bridges. Yeah, I mean, I have really seen how audio, especially with, you know, intertwined with video, can work with film departments, can work with composition areas, um, I've had composers sit in on recording sessions who have said, oh my gosh, you know, like, this is amazing. You know, I, how do you do this? Because as a, as a producer, you're working with the engineers in the studio, you're listening to the artists, you have one ear on noises, and the lawnmower outside right now, and you have another ear on the music, and you're listening to what the musicians say, making sure everything's great in the recording studio, 
and serving the composer's needs who's sitting behind you. So um, we, we wear a lot of hats in audio. And uh, this can be, you know, a real eye-opener to composers. And um, even having um, different genres of music. I mean, one thing I saw when we had an indie band residency at Banff, we, uh, we brought in string players to, to, to perform on one of the pieces. And we brought the, uh, the bands over to see a classical music concert. And it just amazes me, not only the producer I had brought in, you know, who, who was a great um, indie producer, said, you know, can I get the names of, you know, your favorite classical CDs or, you know, classical players being introduced to working in the studio with pop musicians? I mean, they, they hung out together. It's just we can, we can bridge those gaps in audio. Things don't have to be so separated. And if they're not separated, people tend to learn way more from each other. Um, so having had the luxury of working my own work and choosing to stay there for so long, um, despite being offered other things, was mainly because of what I got to do with education that was different than what I might have been able to do in university or, or school. So, yeah, it was uh, a choice. It's interesting that lateral thinking, thinking, you know, even even what you're talking about calculating time delay, you're talking about using it for, you know, spot microphones and, and microarrays, but we use it all the time to time align PA systems. So this stuff can really be applied to different areas. Oh, and yeah, I mean, I got off track with that again. That, that was the one time I did research um, that was published. Uh, well, I did other research, but it was in collaboration, facilitating uh, at Banff. But uh, yeah, time delay compensation now, you can dial it in on, on a console or do it yourself. It's a tool. But really what amazed me when I did that work um, was the fact that it did improve my ear brain um, capacity to hear time delays. And I could tell you if it was 12 milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, whatever at the time, I was really tuned into it. I had trained my brain. That I found really interesting and I mean there's tons of work that's been done since then but you know sometimes it was good to have the exact amount of delay that you needed gave you that depth within an orchestra and I, I did this between orchestras and small chamber groups as well other times to have the delay you know a much shorter delay or no delay at all or have the delay before the main mics I mean there were it's a tool you have to know um you have to know the science and technology behind what you're doing. A lot of people try to skip that today, I find, in recording, because it's easy to use a workstation or everybody has Pro Tools on the computer or whatever else they use. But um, I really pushed understanding, and that's why I bring in faculty from old school, younger and older faculty. Um, we had the pleasure at Banff of having people like uh, John Urgel, you know, talk about mic technique and mic placement you know, in his recordings, amazing recordings with orchestra. At one time, I, I actually, early on in my time at Banff, I put on a conference with um, John Urgel, Bob Ludwig, and George Massenberg called Mixing, Miking, and Mastering. And so <laughs> you just went after it, and they all said, yes, I mean, it's a great destination. And so we had an amazing conference uh, with so few people. And at the time, I, I was also putting together something for uh, tutorials were new. Um, at AES, I think that might 
these might have been some of the first ones, but I put some of these together and the people at the time at AES thought, oh, this is for education. She's working with that group. So we'll put it at eight in the morning. And honestly, you couldn't get in the room. There were 200 people lined up to get in or not 200, but 200 in and a lineup still for others to get inside the room because these topics were important, not just for students, but for continuing education for all of us in audio. And that's how I like to run education. Uh, I'm not alone in that, but I did see early on in, in at the AES where, you know, students were kind of put in rooms with their own learning, although this amazing conference was going on and um, we tried to change that and it's, it's much different now. And um, that's a good thing because in the same way that, you know, students in grade one or two, you can expect a lot more of them. You can certainly expect a lot more of young people at AES conventions to, ha to be able not only to listen to some of these talks, but to be able to add their voice. So. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but but John Ergo wrote one of the microphone books. Of, yeah, recording yeah. Uh, music or recording technologies, many volumes he did. Yeah, yeah, and having those three people, he and Bob Ludwig and George Massenburg, who all respected each other so much in the same room was really was very inspiring for anybody who was at that conference. And we did a few more of them later on. That wasn't just the only one. And we did also pro professional producing uh, conferences for classical music as well there. Um, and then one AES international conference on surround sound, which was, you know, a great way to draw attention to uh, where I was working and draw attention to the audio program as well. So that was a fun times, a lot of work. Yeah, on to new things. And uh, I continue to consult and um, working for Aspen and do music production, which I love to do working with artists. Um, so yeah, we'll see where see where it takes me. I have many colleagues, not many, but a few who try to talk me into giving papers and, you know, writing, writing more about what I've done. But I, uh, I'm, I'm somebody I realize who prefers to do. Even to talk about this, I had to write a lot of things down because I knew I'd forget them. Um, and, um, you know, my mind works a bit over time. But that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, really, I, I need to say I'm grateful because I was given opportunities that, um, you know, I was prepared for. And, you know, when you're prepared and you have this incredible opportunity to build on uh, what your background is, it's, it's, it's a gift. So I, I'm thankful and I'm thankful that I, you know, I'm working in, in different places now and continuing to, um, to use the knowledge that I have. Um, but my, my biggest strength probably is with, as, as an educator um, or a mentor, that kind of, of role. Even as a producer, that's what you're doing a lot of the time. So, can you can you talk about um, the mentorship? And I know you've done done a lot of mentoring for engineers around the world that have gone on to do some pretty amazing things. So, so what have you kind of um, what kind of things have you learned from mentoring? And and who are some of the women in particular that you have mentored? Okay, I wasn't going to mention any names because. Um, I will, and then I will now, but I, I realized, you know, sometimes people will hear one name and they'll know that person. And so they write about it. Like in, you know, I've, people have interviewed me a couple times 
for things. And uh, I read that and I think, hmm, that's, that's like highlighting one person. And there were like so many, um, but okay. Um, so, well, women, I mean, when I was at the university of Iowa, um, 17 year old or 16 Poppy Crumb, who is now the head scientist for Dolby and uh, a neuroscientist and who studied at uh, McGill, um, also did a stint at Banff, um, Berkeley, postdoc at Johns Hopkins. I mean, I don't want to say what she's done because she's better to tell you that. But I, I was a mentor to her. She came in to do a recording. Uh, she was in high school at the time with her mom. And then, and then uh, asked about taking that course that Lowell offered at the University of Iowa and worked in the studio where I was mentoring and recording engineer. And um, so... Yeah, she and uh, Reed Kruger, someone else went on and did really well, also went to band. Uh, Brian Sarvis ended up going to McGill. So because I was there, I think I, I had an influence on those people um, in, in the world of audio. And, and obviously, you know, being a woman, that was a nice thing for someone like um, Poppy or um, who else? Oh, so many women. Um, Amandine Pra, who came to band from... Um, that you're working with from Paris. That program had so many women, Anne-Laure Pitet, um, you know, Coralie Vincent, um, Mireille Faure, all these women who came through Banff. We tended to have an amazing relationship with the conservatory in Paris um, just because they had such amazing training in music and technology, but didn't have the opportunity to really do the hands-on and professional work and be mentored to get that sense of... Um, I mean, they're working at the Conservatory of Paris, so it's hard to develop that confidence in recording with people uh, when you're at such a prestigious school. So Banff was a really good place for them. They've all gone on, you know, Marianne Schwebel, who was at Banff when I first went back, she's, you know, she was a producer for Beast. Uh, Marie Ebbing, who met her husband at Banff, Jonathan, um, gosh, names, they would kill me, but... Um, but uh, anyhow, see, I, I try not to do the name thing because I'll forget last names. Uh, anyhow, they um, she ended up working for uh, uh, working with Mark Wilshire, who was one of my first students at Banff, who went on to work for you know Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings. He's in the UK right now. Worked at Skywalker. He hired Marie. So a lot of times, the earlier people that went through Banff that came back later as faculty. I would encourage them to always hire somebody who was really good and needed the same opportunity that they were given because they met somebody while they were at that. So um, Sean Everts, the person that uh, came from Bragg Creek, just down the road um, from high school. And, you know, I, I say this a lot, but um, he could, you know, turn a bread box into, a, you know, a composition just because he's so amazing with sound. But Banff gave him the opportunity to experiment. At one point, we hosted uh, Stanford's summer school, Karma, Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics. And um, I put Sean in that course because they were building musical instruments. So here was somebody from with a high school background working with a PhD at, at Stanford and doing amazing work. They learned from each other. Um, he ended up going back and forth to Banff. Sean did for, for many years because he was also touring and doing other things. So. Um, yeah, I, I like to think that that we had a lot to do with his, you know, audio training, and he didn't fit the normal school. 
Um, I remember that somebody who was mentoring Sean uh, had said to me, well, he doesn't want to be involved in recording the string quartet competition. I said, oh, yes, he does. And because he did that, he was he became interested in Bartok. So you had to have people go back and forth between the studio and, and you know, the, the hall and learn about things that might not be their strength. I didn't force people to do, to spend tons of time, but they had to be exposed to what they could learn from other um, other genres. That's a long-winded answer. So Sean, Poppy, Mark, and Marie, Amandine, and there's so many uh, so many women, so many. Jennifer Nelson, who, yeah, and Tung, who was at uh, Banff as well, from Peabody. I hired both of them for Aspen. I had to have people with U.S. citizenship to work as staff at Aspen. So I, and to be honest, even though, you know, I wasn't uh, hiring people internationally, at Aspen last summer, there were 11 of us total. Um, and I didn't do this on purpose, but there were six women and five men. So... In my experience, without really tr- trying, uh, there were equal numbers basically over the years at Banff. Um, and I think recording programs based in music schools have a larger percentage of women. But, um, you know, people like Terry Winston, um, I don't know her personally, but they I, I followed a little bit what um, or, or read about what she has built with Women's Audio Mission and um, they go into middle schools now. And I think that's where you're going to make the bigger impact. Mm-hmm. You know, same with technology and engineering and things, going into the schools. Um, having been a, a school teacher, I know the impact that that can have. So, yeah, I'm, um, and today with Zoom, I mean, what Sound Girls is doing is so impressive. And see, I'll, I'll leave and have forgotten to mention that. But the fact that I didn't know about Sound Girls until you contacted me. And I thought, I'm a woman in audio, so we just have to blow our own horn a little bit. But look, I'll I'll even say AES has to remember this too when they're putting panels together. I mean, it's not like I go searching for women. And I know James, who's who's continuing the program at Banff, James Clemenceeli, has said to me, he doesn't have to look. They're just, you know, he'll take the best person. And, you know, once in a while you're forced with, okay, I have two people equal quality here. And, you know, maybe then you'd, you'd say, well, I'm going to give the female the chance, you know, because they're equal. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't see a dividing line between, I think we all have many sides. We all have our right and left brain. We have our masculine and feminine tendencies. And today, thankfully, um, you know, things have changed. And so there are more opportunities for however anybody identifies culturally, sexually, um, you know, there, there's there's room for everybody. And I'm so happy to see that changing. But again, I think why it happened with me is I just, um, it, it didn't feel right. I mean, it wouldn't feel right if it was like completely a school with, you know, no women or completely... You know, and I think we we have the responsibility to change that. So I worked in schools where there were some difficult um, students and, um, you know, some low-income areas. And it it would have been easy to ignore the quiet students and always deal with those needing the attention. And you you have to find a way to point things out to, to the students, to let them know it's not fair, it's not equal. And you can do that um, at any age. It's funny, as we get older, we're not as uh, 
<laughs> we don't adhere as much to those lessons we learn early in life. But um, yeah, with continuing education and you know new technologies, um, you know leaning towards empathetic technologies, I, I think that again they're just tools. Artificial intelligence, another tool, doesn't mean you push it away any more than you pushed away, uh, you know, the computer. But we, we have to be able to be discerning with the tools and with how we, we put programs together, how we teach. And with Zoom today and with Sound Girls out there, I mean, if, if AES is looking for, you know, a panel of people and it's all men, then just go to Sound Girls <laughs> and, you know, pick a few. Because they're amazing. I, I was looking at this and I thought, oh, I didn't know all these women existed. I love the way that Sound Girls are doing it. I love the way that Women's Audio Mission is doing it. Um, years ago at AES, there was uh, was called Women in Audio, and and for a while, I wasn't as intrigued by it because it seemed the conversation was, uh, you know, a bit a bit more negative experiences in studios. And I, I think there's a better way. I'm not saying that it was wrong. It just wasn't um, my way of dealing with, you know, how we how we improve what we do. I mean, we just have to showcase who was out there. We didn't do as good a job of that as we should have years ago, but we're doing a better job now. One of the things that was pointed out to me and had to be pointed out to me is when you're the only woman on a team, sometimes you can actually be intimidating. And, and I never thought of myself as being like, I always thought about, oh, I'm intimidating, like being the only, but we, we can too. And so it's also on us to approach it and be like, Hey, well, why are why are less than ten percent of the papers and panels at, at AES women and presented by women? I was say, well, maybe we need to approach this in a way where we're just at the table too, and that's just the way it is, and we're totally we we are capable, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of approaching it and not not dismissing it either, but um, but just just more welcoming to be accepted. It's interesting too. what you say. I mean, I. I would encourage you, given what we've discussed, I know I've talked a lot about me today, which always leaves me feeling a little odd, but um, you have this great opportunity now going back to school and, and with everything you've done. I mean, I'm always impressed. I've always been impressed with, you know, the participants that I had that I bring into the program. Many know way more than I do, which is really helpful I like to surround myself with smart people, but um, no, you just approach it as though, you know, you have the right to be there. I think, you know, some people ask me, has it been a benefit to be a woman? Um, In some cases, yes, I would say. And uh, have you reached some glass ceilings because you've been a woman? In some cases, yes, no matter how high that ceiling can be, people might not be ready for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, um, yeah, not tried to be very political, but I, I have tried to stand up for what I thought was right. And, um, yeah, you could do anything you wanted to do is what I would tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not about men, um, not promoting women, or women not promoting women, both of which can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's about 
being fair and uh, to everybody and noticing what they're worth. Yeah, you'll run into things. I did. I I, I tend not to concentrate on that. Um, yeah, some things you, you have to you know move on, forgive. You, you sometimes don't forget certain things, but you hopefully learn from them. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's also easier to stand up for other people than yourself sometimes as a woman. I will say that. I've learned that about myself even. Um, because we have a tendency to be very detail oriented and very focused on fixing things. And uh, I'm not saying men aren't, but I think that is something probably I've noticed that I just did automatically. And maybe that's inherent in what I had to face um, with a career in audio, you know, a long time ago. So starting 30 years ago or whatever, I mean, starting seriously, I started teaching 40 years ago. So hmm, I was very young, but uh, yeah. I, I love what you said earlier about not necessarily only listening to the loudest thing, because oftentimes we do mask other people's voices and, and just because it's so, something's just so loud in the mix and, and we are listeners as audio people and we are responsible for changing those levels in the mix and maybe if something is like peaking and peaking and peaking. We could, you know, like there's subtractive mixing too. And, and there's additional listing, but the problem with always adding and adding is it just gets noisier and noisier and harder to understand. And so just, you know, listening and, and listening to those people that aren't necessarily the first to, to say something. And I think that's just such an important thing in, in, in education and for society as well. That's our job. Yeah. Making sure that everybody has a voice and in a quiet way. Um, I think it was tongue last summer at, at Aspen that said to me, um, very bright young woman who works for Saturday night live now, um, said, you know, the interesting thing about Teresa, she always made you think it was your idea. <laughs> And I thought, it's funny to hear those things because you think, oh, I didn't realize I did that. But I, I think in trying to convince someone to do something, you know, and letting them know that they're capable of doing it um, is really important. It's interesting to hear you talk because you obviously have a, a very artistic mind. And um, yeah, I, I see that. And, and there are many, I see many women as producers. And I, I, I think that's part of it. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes it's it's difficult with that kind of mind to uh, to focus in on one answer when you're interviewing somebody. But um, yeah, I, I think you you're right. Listening is so important. Listening classes are so important. Listening to the music, listening to the technology, listening for noises critical listening, uh, opening those classes to all musicians in a school, not just the audio program, uh, will help you develop a language back and forth, especially today where musicians are going to be recorded so much for Zoom and live TV and everything else. Um, but listening in life, yeah. Easy to do when you're with your one-on-one -on -one with people in your program. And very important. I think when people know you have their back, they will open up more and they will be more likely to succeed. 
And um, it's easier to do that when you're working with participants than, you know, I've seen some people who, who can be tough and out there and stand up for everything, but I've seen them when they're with students and uh, I see how they work. And I think, wow, they're, they're amazing mentors and uh, really great. Amandine is one of those people I've, I've seen her working at in New York and, um, you know, I've been in different places and, uh, yeah, I mean, because we're talking about women, I'm mentioning women now, but, um, yeah, people who, who walk the walk and, and really, really do that. It, you get so much back. So I think being in an educational world is, is, uh, maybe really fulfilling. Have you, have you noticed any change, uh, like trends that have changed, uh, during your time in this industry? Like what's different now than when you first started out? Well, besides using a razor blade to splice tape, even in Iowa, um, that far back, um, what's different? Um, well, you know, those amazing studio recordings and using all of that incredible gear, which is so important to still have and, and to teach some of that. But we have to be, the gear that you buy for your program has to be, I mean, has to be something that is practical as well. So you learn the concepts and you learn analog and digital, but you, um, and I, I prefer to use faders versus just a mouse for clicking everything. I think you hear better that way. But the, the quality of, I mean, people are wearing headphones all the time now, not listening so much. I mean, stereo is moving to immersive audio big time fast. And, uh, you know, it's un, important to understand stereo microphone techniques and then let it go to do something else. But yeah, teaching audio, it's, it's really teaching audio and video together. Um, you know, and in some places, unfortunately, there were places where video would see themselves as separate from audio and audio was a service to video in the same way that some music programs would see audio as a service to music. I, I never liked that. I, it, it, we have to be equal partners. And I think where that is changing today is that people who do audio also know video. Thank goodness. It's because they can do both. And people who know video are, are understanding more and more the importance, I think, of audio uh, to the final product. So that's changing. And um, with new technologies, I mean, emerging technologies, uh, you know, people are recording in their basements and, um, you know, the large studio is, is not what people go to, although Skywalker and Abbey Road and all of those places are incredible for your ears, like the sound that can move you. And my pet peeve has always been that education today, uh, governments today, everyone today, we don't do enough about training people about the importance of their ears and sound pollution. Um, there's a whole generation of people that aren't going to be able to hear. And I don't think, I think AES needs to do more in that area. Uh, they do quite a bit, but it needs to be way more. It needs to be easier to understand. We, we need to, not that people don't understand, but make it accessible to, you know, elementary middle school, high school students especially, and parents who send kids off to concerts with no hearing protection. Um, you know, the subtlety won't matter if we can't hear it. So that's something that uh, if I was starting out again, 
that's probably something I'd want to do. Either that or music producing as a, as a you know, complete field because we can reach a whole generation of, of people that are not, they're just not being taught. And it's, there's a the science to prove it. So we need to do better. I know there's quite a profound difference between just noise bylaws comparing Europe to North America and, and the awareness around just, you know, yeah. what, what is a destructive level of noise? Yeah. Even like in our daily lives. We had someone from a Florian Kammerer from uh, Vienna speak a few times at Banff on that. Again, I, I drew people from AES to come into Banff. I also ran an Alberta section of the AES for many, many, many years from Banff, more than you're supposed to, because people would go there to, you know, they would come in from Edmonton, Calgary, and I was able to bring in faculty, so I had to share that. And uh, that was a nice way to meet the community and do, you know, bring in a lot of local people into the studios as well and, and train them as well, both locally, nationally, and internationally. It's important. Actually, Dave Horax, who, who runs the Alberta chapter, is the, is the person who said, hey, you should really interview Teresa. Oh, that's nice. Again, Dave was one of those people who was local. So bringing in local faculty, I mean, my gosh, you know, he's a mastering engineer and one of the best teachers we had. And he could, you know, all of a sudden I'd see a gap in the program and think, Dave, can you come in this week? Like, you know, we have time. We'd like to get everyone together and he'd come in and do a class. So we had lots of wonderful wonderful people like that Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean so many people benefited so much and and still write me today i i I find it interesting that i'll get letters from participants wanting me to write them a letter and they're you know postdoc and doing this and i think why do you want a letter from me and uh at this point and they say well because you knew my work like you know you, you banff was a pivotal moment for me and i you know, we at one point there was some money at the center. They didn't know what to do with it for training and broadcasting, and and I said, oh, we can do that. So alongside what we were doing in recording, and it was for women actually. So we we trained women in broadcasting, and they had to be Canadian. So it was through CBC and Chorus Entertainment, I believe, and that was just wonderful because I brought in some faculty that were you know, radio voices and producers to work with them. So they in turn interviewed some of the audio people and, and they also assisted on concerts. And so, you know, you did that kind of a training alongside other things you were doing. And um, yeah, that was really interesting. But I'm, I've got off, gone off topic again, I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate it. Do you have any advice like to, to young women, especially, but just young people that are starting out in, in the audio industry? Like, what do you wish you knew when you first started out <laughs> that, you know, that's a really good question. I wish I knew that um, just because I might not have been so interested in one aspect, you know, when I thought, Oh, I can't do this because I don't really, you know, love talking about quantization or, um, you know, programming or certain areas that, you know, I could do, but didn't interest me as much that I, that I could do it. I mean, I, I ended up in this, in this television show, you know, going to a place where if the show didn't get off the the floor in a week, they were moving it to Toronto. This was in Nova Scotia. I went back there and uh, I had to learn that console inside out. And I had to be in touch with Japan with questions about it. It was a fairly new console at the time 
And um, yeah, I did it. And, and yet I, I also should have known that I don't, when things stop working as well and there are too many um, sort of doors closing to what you see as being beneficial, you know, maybe move on and do something else. Um, and also that you don't have to know everything, surround yourself with people that are experts in that area and do what your, go with what your strength is. I was, like I said, into my 20s when I started at McGill and I uh, was a little nervous about AES or presenting a paper there. And I ended up being president of AES. So we're all just people. I mean, even doing this interview today, I got a little nervous. I mean, there's no reason. If I was talking to you one-on-one, I'd be more focused and, you know, not feeling I have to cover everything in case I miss something, which is probably what I'm doing a little bit of today. But um, that we all have something to bring to the table and that there are enough people that are going to give you um, um, credit for what you do, that you don't just listen to those voices that are negative. And that's something that I think I'll aim that one a little bit towards women. Um, not so much that it doesn't happen to men. They're very sensitive across genders. I've met tons of people that are strong in one area, weak in another. But, you know, as, as, as females, I don't, don't concentrate on that. Concentrate more on the successes you've had and the, um, you know, the people that you've helped and the good work you've done and, you know, what musicians say, like, hear that. Don't push that away. Like, really hear it when people give you credit for what you deserve credit for. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably uh, good advice. But also to look, you know, look for strengths around you. Look for partnerships. Um, find mentors. Uh, don't be afraid to talk to the person whose work you admire. If they're in audio, they're probably nice. <laughs> Duh. And, um, you know, they'll talk to you. And, uh, it, you know, maybe I've learned a little bit about that, you know, being Canadian and then living in the U.S. for quite a while or working there and working abroad, um, consulting. I, um, you know, I've learned that as Canadians, too, we can be a little, like, intimidated by pushing forward. And probably my strength in, in really helping grow the, the program at BAMP Center, um, even though I'd been a part of it with both David Kelman and Kev, Kevin Elliott, was, um, you know, my ability to go back and say, okay, let's follow this model now that we're music and sound. Let's do the faculty. Let's do the conferences. Let's make sure that we have sound checks for every concert. Let's make sure we get the right equipment. You know, let's make sure we're involved in that, you know, literary conference over here that we can do audio for it. And, you know, just I was able to build on something because I'd, I'd been prepared for it. And um, so if you're teaching at a university, look for other programs that uh, you can align with. And if, you know, you're in a music program where the musicians might not be at the caliber that they would be at Aspen or Banff, um, you know, still like you know, bring in outside artists to record that can work with both areas. I mean, there, there are so many things you can do to up the level of education and um, within budget. There's a lot you can do within budget. Look locally. You know, I brought in people from, you know, 
locally that you know may not have been at a university but they were in they were in the profession and they were some of the best teachers we ever had they'd never taught before I remember you know someone like Joe Furla actually he was from New York but uh bringing him into work with jazz and uh he loved it and just you know gained a lot of people that have worked in the industry for a long time and haven't been able to teach they get so much from teaching and they learn as much from the group when you have smart students or practicum participants, whatever we call them, uh, they learn a lot from them equally. So yeah, creating an environment where there uh, are no stupid questions, it's safe and people are comfortable. Learning can happen better than in a seat. <laughs> I, I just know I could use this advice personally. Like, How did you deal with that intimidation factor and being a little bit scared, like, oh, I'm joining you AES. Like, how do you just do it and just, you know, submit the paper to AES or just say, okay, I'm, I am at a level where I could mentor people. How did, like, what kind of inner strength, like, how did you just... Well, again, my, my practice with education, my, my professional experience in working with hundreds of students, young students, um, you know, uh, it's like playing piano or playing any instrument you know, what is it, 10,000 hours or something, that um, the, the, and speaking another language, I think helps you with your ear. And I had to teach in a French school, which was my second language. Um, all of those things, you know, help you flex a muscle. So practice, 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 practice. I don't practice enough sometimes when I'm giving a talk. Like even today, I could have like said, okay, I'm going to write this out so that I'm not, you know, jumping from one topic to another. But there's, I thought I need to be open to what your questions would be too. Um, practice. I used to be so nervous that my mouth would shake if I stood up to, you know, meet somebody new. I was very shy as, as a young girl. And um, I think that's a challenge. You just get over it. And maybe it's why I pushed myself, you know, to these jobs. I mean, I went to McGill not knowing anyone. Well, first I went, I moved from my province to study music uh, in another province, didn't know anyone. And you're from the East Coast, I went to New Brunswick. I grew up in New Brunswick and I studied uh, music and PEI. I um, studied education degree back in New Brunswick. I taught school in Newfoundland and in New Brunswick. I went to McGill. I went to Banff. I went to Nova Scotia. I went to Iowa. I went back to Banff and then I did other things, but um uh, now I'm in Victoria on the very west coast of Canada. If this doesn't work, I'll be in the ocean. But, um, yeah, um, your question again. You asked me about... Uh, just just kind of... Oh, geez, now I'm having... Yeah, that. sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, I mean, how, how you just got used to... Oh. to Standing up and, 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 you know, being on the panel and submitting the paper and, you know, doing those actions that are so important for us if we do want to, you know, make it 10%, not 5%, and then 20% and, and make it less intimidating for both sides for us to be communicating and have that collaborative, diverse environment. Well, being in education and continuing to study, I mean, my my master's degree because I I did two years of undergrad in addition to my undergrads at McGill and uh, two years of the master's program and then another two years by the time I finished the thesis it was the longest master's in history but 
Um, all of that, it, there's no fast way to do anything. I learned that early on. And I had to be comfortable and in my comfort zone. And lots of times I wasn't comfortable, but I pushed myself to do things. But I was also with people who did this kind of work and who did present papers and who, and like, it was mentoring John Urgel saying to me, you can do this. Like I could have written this. This is like really good information, you know? Um, I, I was, I got ahead more in my career, I think in Canada, but I was promoted more in the U S I think it's just different cultures do do things differently. And so, um, yeah, I had people support me and say, you should do this. And if people don't do that, you may not do it. So you have to kind of be your own cheerleader as well. Like I said, you know, the idea of going to AES was frightening to me. Presenting a paper was frightening. And then becoming president, I mean, it's just, you know, somebody, um, Ron Stryker had, had uh, been a faculty once and said to me, you know, I'm, I'm going to put your name forward as governor. And I got it. And, you know, that's maybe something where there's always you know, this idea that AES is something up in the sky and you have to go for, it's a, it's a small group of people running things. And for a while it was like too small, you know, and, and, and I think they have a nice business model now and, um, and they're doing a lot more online. And so it's really good, but you can easily get involved if you know how I promoted a lot of students to go and become part of the student get delegate assembly. Uh, one from Japan, a, a girl I had really said, you need to go and, and do this so that you bring attention also to your country and your school. And um, yeah, just put yourself out there. If you're a young student and you're part of the AES and, and you're part of a school, because usually you have to be part of a, an AES chapter you know, put your name forward, go forward and say, this is what I'd like to do. You know, go talk to the people who are doing it now. You have to put in some effort, but, you know, talk to the, talk to the people whose music you love, talk to the people whose job you'd like to have. Um, I was afraid. Yeah. I, I was nervous. I, I did it. And I obviously got something back from that and continued to challenge myself. And my, my career became my life. And if anything, um, I didn't balance. And so if I would say to anybody else, you know, balance, it doesn't hurt to have both. But maybe as a female and doing everything I was doing and trying to keep the level up there, I, I, I had to do what I had to do in order to make it happen. And if I hadn't done that, I, I'm not sure others would have stepped in. You know, be, they would have if I'd hired them, but if I didn't have the funding to, but I had so much help along the way. Like I've always had amazing staff. I could never have done what I did without the staffing we had. And I fought for the staff. Mm -hmm. You have to have staff who also benefit from what you're doing. So yeah, surround yourself with good people, push yourself to do some things. And um, maybe some things don't do. I mean, probably there were things I didn't have to do. I could have balanced a little better, but I did what I did. And so I'm, you know, I'm grateful. One of, one of the things I've been missing so much during this COVID is is my team and, and the, the diverse skills they had and just having a team. But It's fun when you have a group of people who love doing what they're doing um, and you can encourage that. Uh, it's fun to go to work, you know, no matter what's happening around you, you know, you have this bubble of people who love what they're doing and who continue to make a difference. And even when things aren't good, you you try not to let any of that affect 
that, you know, incredible bubble and group. It's, a, it's a kind of expanded with our technologies over this time with all these, you know, Sound Girls has been putting on so many panels and webinars and, and so yes, and it's kind of made it a little bit more accessible. Like I didn't have to go all the way to Vienna to hear Amandine's talk. Yes. So I think that is amazing. Yeah, because there's so many well-kept secrets. Um, I joined this uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence, um, sorry, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality uh, conference. I managed to get in at AES, and it blew my mind. I mean, really, everybody had their own little avatar. And at, at a break, you could walk down a hallway. And if you stopped, I mean, we're all in our living rooms, but if you stopped, and listen to a conversation, those avatars would look at you like you were like, hello, why are you here? We're talking personally. And the, the sound, you know, the way they had built the sound in the, in the auditoriums, you know, so that it really sounded natural uh, as you went by different conversations um, and you had to walk into the auditorium and take a seat. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I fell downstairs and would have had a broken leg and different things, but uh moving my little avatar around. But I, I learned so much from that conference. It was bizarre. But I never would have done that if we hadn't, you know, had this pandemic. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't have joined, you know, a lot of these talks when you're at AES, you're running from one room to another. You're trying to listen to people, but you're bumping into people in hallways. This way you can just zoom in, listen to something, you know, in your pajamas and uh, and then, you know, make dinner or something. It's, it's uh it's really quite unique the way we're using Zoom. And I think if we're talking about women in audio, um, it's, it's an easy time to, to help promote that and make that kind of be a, something we don't have to talk about and just do uh, because there's so many, many things available to all of us equally. That's really nice. I know it's a, a different format and definitely not the same as being being in person, but, but it's not all negative either. There are some positives to come out of it. Oh, so many. I do have a question. I'm, I'm wondering, what are, there, are you surprised at how much you've achieved in, in your career and in, in your path? Like, are you... Well, I always... Um... I think I'm harder on myself than anyone else. And yeah, I, I, I need, I needed to stop and pat myself on the back a little bit, you know, cause I always had these different challenges, whether it was initially working in a French school where because I was in Francophone, they weren't too happy about that, but I, you know, I spoke well and I, um, you know, I also did internship programs to improve my French. I grew up in a French town, but my family was English. And, you know, when I came out of there, I had a really nice letter from the superintendent. Um, so that was a challenge. And then, you know, going into music was even a challenge because although I played piano, um, I didn't study as hard as I should have growing up in an area where none of my friends, you know, really did. But my mom pushed me. And then I really pushed that and, um, you know, got my music degree and I, you know, I'm, I'm a decent amateur pianist and, uh, yeah, then the education thing following in that footstep, the McGill thing that seemed like, wow, technology, this is not my area, but it, it certainly was my area. And, um, as much as it was anybody else's 
and uh, my I'm more interested in the producing side of it now. I certainly can tell people where to put the microphones and when it doesn't sound good and when there's too much reverb. <laughs> and lots of times I go out and move the microphones. Anyone that works for, with me knows this, but I have to move it to hear it. Um, but I've preferred, I've, I've moved into the leadership, more the leadership facilitator, music producer role than actually learning every new piece of gear that comes out. But I have a, a lot of opinions about the gear. And when I don't know what to do, I will call people that I, whose opinion I trust, um, that know more than I do. And it has surprised me how many people are adverse, you know, once they get to know me, they know I'll do this, you know, that I do ask. I ask a lot of opinions before making a, a decision. And I'm not going to say men, but mostly because it, it has been men that I've seen this happen with, you know, want to make a decision and do the research themselves when I'm working with them. And I think, well, why don't I just put you in touch with this person because they're doing that already, you know, on a very high scale and they, they're happy to help us. And lots of times people don't really you know, they don't want to feel they don't have the answer themselves. And I, I think that's kind of a weakness more than a strength. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to you? It does, actually. Um, I always think that, you know, my ears are, 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 are my reference, but I always want feedback from, from people in the space because they're hearing it slightly different. And I'm, it's ultimately not just for me. It's ultimately for the, for the, for the audience and the clients, really, so... That's very good. It, that's something I do as well. I remember one of my engineers who was such an amazing um, engineer, and he came more from the pop side and me more from the classical, so we made a good team. Um, Graham said to me once, he used to wonder, he'd say to me, why are you asking me? Like, you know this. And I'd say, because you have great ears and I want to know what you think. And so, you know, he learned a lot from me and me from him in, in that sense. And I, I love being able to and he taught, you know, the participants so much. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm talking a lot about myself today, but the, the truth is I couldn't do what I did without the people I had around me. And um, I always ask, I ask them, I like asking the musicians. I have to be careful not to bring them in too early, but um, I like explaining what I'm doing, but then showing them so that they stop talking uh, what a quick edit will do. And then they can let that go. It's like, yeah, I played this better in that take, but then in this measure, I'm better. It's like, okay, here. <laughs> and as a producer, you really do have to learn, um, you know, so much has changed in the business side of things today, but remain, what remains the same is the respect for the composer's wishes, uh, getting the best performance you can from the artist, and knowing how to get the best sound you can from an acoustic space or any studio you're in. And that hasn't changed. So... Yeah, um, you know, bringing the musicians up to speed on that and having them realize it's not as hard as they thought, as Judy Sherman would say, or that they learn so much. These are comments she gets often from musicians. Um, I, I've run into the same thing. So, yeah, it's um, asking people's input. And, you know, sometimes a musician will come in and they'll say, well, I don't know, you know. And I think, well, no, like you... You know, if you tell us that it needs to sound blue, we can't do that. But if you say it sounds a little harsh or, you know, it doesn't sound like me um, or play them different versions when you move some microphones and get their input. I mean, it affects the sound so much. And that training takes a while. 
you know, um, you can still do it if you haven't been trained in a quote unquote tone moisture, tone moisture type program, you know, about recording acoustic music and acoustic spaces, but you can train people to do that. And uh, it makes a difference whether they're working in, in film and rock and roll or, or, you know, jazz, classical, doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's um, important ear training. Ear training is so important in what we do. So I think I've, I've been all over the map and talked a lot, but, I'm, I'm, you know, if you have more specific questions, it will focus me a little better. <laughs> but you've had great questions. I just think now it's, uh, I've probably covered everything I have to say. I am kind of curious about just more of your specific roles that you've played in history. I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Thank you so much for your for your time. Mind. No, I'd probably do better if we did this again, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, just, just your specific, you know, um, like what did you specifically do? And also kind of what do you want people to remember about what do you what would you like if it was fifty years from now what, what would you want people to remember about you like what what are your proudest moments in in a sense um, I think the lives that i've you know affected um, I've had many people thank me and say that without you know, that experience, they wouldn't be where they are. So I think that's, that's my thanks. You know, it it might not be on a bulletin board or written up anywhere, but, um, you know, that old saying, you know, people don't remember who said this. I can't remember uh, what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. So yeah, that, if you if you didn't do audio, if you didn't go into audio, what do you think? What else would you have done? I like I like leadership roles. I like being able to make a difference in people's lives. So, I mean, artistically, I I have I think a, a decent ear. I like languages, so maybe linguistics, um, you know, uh, psychology. Um, yeah, so that's why I think I'm drawn to producing. I don't necessarily like staring at a score and blocking a score forever for editing. That's not so much fun, but, you know, it's very artistic. Um, so probably music producing, education was always great, but I, you know, to keep doing it. And being a teacher is very, very hard work in, in uh, with young students because especially being in a uh, specialty role, like music teachers or French teachers, you know, you have... It used to be at least, you know, 30 kids at the door every half hour and you don't get a break to go for a coffee and you don't get a break because you're having a bad day and go for a walk. You, you are, you're in that timeline and so are the students. So you have to try to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think education is really important because of the way I was able to run this sort of not only differentiated teaching model at Banff, but, um, you know, a differentiated learning model, a different way of learning by being very flexible and putting different things together. I think there's a lot to be said for what we should be doing today, especially now with Zoom and online education. So education, um, probably something to do with helping people. I don't know what, I just kind of kept falling into something new with what I did and looking for challenges and going to places that I'd never been or where I knew nobody and taking the good and bad with that, 
you know, realizing it might not be exactly what I wanted to do, but I learned a lot from it. The lessons you learn, it'd be nice to go back and change some things in your life. I don't know that I would definitely necessarily change a lot of what I did, you know, with my working life. Some things I certainly would, but, um, or I would have made, you know, other decisions earlier on, but, uh, no. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or, or talk about that we no, talked about? Just, that we no, I just think that you're very good at what you do and you're great at, um, I think it's really exciting that you're going on to study. And with Amandine, I think she's an amazing mentor at Lethbridge and, uh, and everywhere else she's been. But um, I, I really wish you good luck. And, you. Uh, and, and you can thank, well, I will say thank you to Sound Girls as well. I'm just so grateful to Sound Girls for just the visibility and just it's so inspiring <laughs> to see all these amazing, uh, amazing women who... Well, amazing artists, they're, they're people that do things that I admire. I mean, you know, doing live sound and starting out in that industry, that's a real challenge, you know, where everybody sees you. It's like, and, and to be fair, I was really lucky at, um, when I was at Banff, there was a whole team, you know, uh, an audio theater team that um, we worked so closely with. But, um, and although we did some live, you know, within our studios, you know, for, for compositions all the time, um, we had a whole team of people trained in live sound. And I'd see some women over the years in that area, and I'd always encourage them as well when we worked with them. But um, it's it's tough. I, I think that would be, uh, you know, really tough. I mean, there is the whole thing about carrying equipment and heavy equipment. When I first arrived at Aspen, I was quite shocked because... Um, even though they have to, people have to be able to carry something because it's hit the ground running. Um, you know, there's no time to prepare. You have to get there. You have some training and they have to have enough background that, you know, they either are, are working with someone and learning it very quickly because we have to capture everything. And there are, you know, 400 events in eight weeks. It's, it's quite amazing. Um, but I would see with the training, you know, there'd be this one young woman who weighed nothing and, uh, you know, big burly guy that I also hired behind her carrying the same piece of gear or she, it was her turn to carry it. And he was doing something else. And I thought, whoa, you know, we have to be smart about this stuff too, you know, uh, being feminine or being masculine, it, it, you know, being, having strength or, or being weaker physically, you know, you can't expect equality in those areas when it comes to that is something that used to bother me, even at McGill, I must say, you know, when, I was treated as equally, but you know, when I'm carrying something that is really heavy and someone's talking and they're going to allow me to, to keep carrying that. And I'm thinking like, Hey, could you some help? You know, I, uh, I never really understood that, that part of it. I think we need to use common sense. Yeah. And nobody should be lifting a hundred pound amplifier on their own. Like this is, this is a great uh, opportunity for teamwork. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and growing up with brothers, like that's what they would carry. <laughs> I could carry something lighter, you know. Just be would, you know, be natural. That someone would help you. And I mean, you know, you're always going to run into people who are going to help you, and you're going to run into people who who won't. And uh, yeah, you can um, you can choose to just remember one, or you can choose to, um, you know, uh, help someone understand that you know, another way would have been better, or you can just ignore whatever, whatever works. I mean, you have to be perceptive. That's what a good music producer is. You have to be perceptive to the musician and what they want. Um, but in, in audio, 
engineer, live sound engineer, sound designer. Um, we are such artists in what we do. And we have to be psychologists, artists, um, smart, professional, and, um, you know, develop these incredible people skills while we're learning. And so internship places are, are wonderful. They're few and far between. But that's why I've always chosen to work in that type of area, because I think there's a way to help people get to the next step without leaving altogether because <laughs> they've had a bad experience. Yeah. And to keep at it, you know, obstacles come up no matter what you do in life. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to work hard, but be nice to people. You know, it's, uh, they go hand in hand. Doesn't come easily. And there's so much information out there on the internet. There's a lot of self training you can do, um, you know, but get off your chair and go for a walk <laughs> too. And, you know, protect your hearing and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anybody else you would suggest we interview for the Sound Girls Living History Project? Wow. Oh, well, Sound Girls. Well, Amandine, Poppy Crumb, uh, Marie Ebbing, Jennifer Nelson, Nancy, um, forget your last name, Nancy, uh, Tung Chen, um, Liz Bellotti, who is someone I hired, but I haven't met or haven't worked with yet at, at Iowa, but I've met her at AES a couple of times. And she's uh, been in audio a long time. Studied with a former student of mine from Peabody, and then she's worked at Vail as well. And she's now at McGill. Um, so she's, you know, really chosen her career carefully. Uh, oh, I have so many. I just, I mean, they're going to hate me for, you know, probably the people I work with more closely I haven't mentioned. But um yeah, I'll, 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 I can send you names, but there's so many. I could give you such a list. And, and some of these people are, you know, it, it's nice, too, to see people doing different things. I mean, you know, so in classical music, there, there may be, you know, you have Judith Sherman and uh, Marta de Francisco and um, a lady from Telark. I forget her name right now. Marianne Schwebel, who was with BIS in Sweden, uh, Mireille Faure, who, um, F-A-U-R-E, uh, who is a major producer in France, music producer in France right now. She was somebody I met years ago. Um, so many. Yeah, there are a list of names. About. You know, Agnieszka um, Rojinska, who, who is the president right now of AES, Mm-hmm. Uh, and has worked at NYU in the technology program there for years. Should be on Sound Girls. Um, so many other women. Um, you know, past producer at 8Yes, who's now the treasurer again. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, Marina Bossi. Um, yeah, I mean, there are just, you know, a lot of professional women, young and young and a bit older, you know, my age. Um that it's, you know, I, I know Leslie Ann Jones is, is interviewed everywhere and she should be. Um, but um, there are many, many, many more. And she would be the first to tell you that Leslie was great. Once I doing an interview, I, I was listening to her and she did mention at the time, you know, I was at Banff and she said, that's a place that has a lot of women. So she noticed it as being a faculty. Um, 
But yeah, I have a list of alumni with so many women and from different countries as well, if you're interested in that. I could I could help you with that. And any of these women, you know, that I've mentioned, they would give you a list of, you know, a dozen more. Anne-Laure Guité from France, Paris. Hannah-Laure, it's H-A-N-N-E, it's pronounced Anne-Laure. Uh, again, um, you're doing a lot of work with recording. Um, so just so many, their names will come back, but uh, I... Uh, I could give you names, yeah. And and women doing, oh, I met a woman in Vancouver just this year or last year on a panel. Such an amazing uh, indie producer. And I don't have her name in front of me, but she would be amazing. I listened to her work and I thought, you know, a lot of times people get noticed because they go to a place like Band for Others where they're introduced to faculty who then help them and like every industry, it's up to us to try to put those people in touch with those that will make a difference in their life. Many of them will always have a great career because they're hardworking and the people around them will see them, but they may not get to where they could have been unless we give them a push or highlight them in some way. Um, some people are really great at promoting themselves. They don't need any help. And others are, um, frankly, they're more about the work. Not that the people that promote themselves aren't, but some people um, just deserve to be promoted. Like, like a Sean Everett, who is promoted simply because of what he does, but was one of the most humble people I've ever met and still is. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. It, it's nice to, to do this down memory lane, you know, because I, uh, I've, uh, you know, had a few years where I've been freelancing and doing more work in the summers and and having some time off which has been really you know a godsend to me as well like to, to be able to think about doing other things and um actually doing other things it's kind of fun yeah, yeah. but it's nice to to reminisce and and remember what I've, I've done and I I I must say I'm very happy to still continue to um you know do some teaching and uh some things were canceled, some producing with the Royal Conservatory with Barry Schiffman, who's an amazing colleague of mine uh, from Banff, who, who's at, um, in Toronto now. And uh, at Banff returning, James bringing me back to do some work there. Aspen, some music producing, some consulting. I was in The Hague this year for the second time and an amazing program with lovely students. So that that's very energizing. And... Uh, you know, I mean, there are other people I would recommend to do these things down now. I mean, if they came to me, I'd give them a ton of names. But it's nice to still have, feel like I have something to give back. And I am looking also to do a little more. Um, like I said, I'm not interested really in writing. I'm, I'm interested in doing. And I think I, I'd like to be able to help where I can. So if I find something, I'll, I'll do it. One last kick at the can. <laughs> last hurrah. I would love to ask this one specific question that I'm super interested in, and that's this question. Can you tell us about your role as director of audio for the BAMP Center and what specifically were your job duties? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, well, because I had been a work study in the program when I first left McGill, um, I knew some of the people, especially in the music department there, and um, so when they decided to create a, a um, 
music and sound program, my name came up because I had worked so closely with the musicians when I was a participant in the program years before. So Isabel Ralston, who at the time, she and her husband uh, ran the music program at Banff for many years. And it was a mostly classical, classical and contemporary music, um, classical contemporary um, with jazz in the summer. They invited me back. And uh, so I went through different titles in the beginning, but basically my job was always the same. I always directed the uh, audio area. And I was able to build the program from what it was, which was similar to other internship programs at the BAMP Center, um, where you were exposed to wonderful artists and um, great opportunities to meet people. But I followed the... um, um, the music program in their uh, way of bringing in faculty, guest faculty from academia and industry uh, to work with the students and the audio participants as well as, you know, musicians in many cases. So it was a differentiated teaching model, bringing in guest faculty. Um, the audio engineers were treated as artists and I grew that program although we started in small numbers uh, until they had enough to do and um, grew that program so that we supported not only music concerts, but started recording residencies where people would come to record CDs, built up the recording studio equipment, um, built up the equipment for concert recording as well, got into... um, not only as director, but executive producer of all the CDs that went through there, directing the audio program for work with um, all of the performing arts when it came to recording, literary arts, indigenous arts. Um, Because of the audio program and the fact that we supported not only classical and and jazz programs, uh, which went hand in hand with audio, Throughout the year, we began an indie band, uh, indie band residency. Uh, that was with Barry Schiffman, who was then director of music, and expanded um, the genres of music that came through the center. Um, we also started uh, film scoring opportunities that continue today, and um, some singer-songwriter programs that continue, and. Um, yeah, it was really my job to to grow the program in audio so that it was also international. The participants came from around the world. I got to uh, I um, started working with the AES while I was at Banff, became a governor, and then started speaking at different schools like the Paris Conservatory um, in Berlin. The debt mold tone meister programs and bringing bringing students from these programs Poland etc besides McGill New York University Peabody and um, bringing people in locally in one case someone from high school who their whole training was at BAMP Center um, so we worked on a, a local a national and an international level by training people probably eight to ten people a term and in the beginning, we had three terms a year. So that was bringing through up to about 30 
uh, work study or practicum participants through the BAP Center in audio yearly. And our job was uh, not only to support concerts, support is not a bad word in audio, but to support professionally musicians in archiving, recording concerts, um, doing broadcast work, um, putting CDs together, bringing in faculty to work with the musicians and the audio engineers, bringing in producers, bringing in sound artists to work with sound artists and audio at the same time, um, putting on international conferences and, um, yeah, taking advantage of the fact that we were in an international um, destination for artists in the mountains with hotel and dining facilities to make this all possible. Oh, wonderful. I, I know I've been to the BAMP Center for a sound summit, and I just so... That experience was absolutely amazing. So I'm yeah, very, very impressed by the work that comes out of out of the band. Yeah, it's really um, it was really you know curating a diverse team of in-house professionals, the staff who I don't mention enough. I could never do this alone. We had amazing staff, amazing um, artists in all areas, and. Uh, you know, we were able to bring in people with different backgrounds at different levels uh, to work with each other. And again, they learned more from each other than any faculty you brought in. Faculty learned a lot from the participants in the program. So it was very exciting. Um, you know, a lot, we allowed participants to learn as much from each other, as I said. And, um, you know, we, I, it was my job to bend to meet the different needs of the different participants in the program and help them fill in the blanks in their training or help them understand what their real passion was or open their eyes to new opportunities in audio that they might not have known about had they not come there. What were, what were some of the projects that, that you worked on? Oh my goodness. Um, well, all of the amazing concerts that happened year round, um, classical jazz, um, and then the in indie band uh, program was was quite exceptional as that took place in the studio. So bringing in producers to work with um, a lot of these bands that hadn't had the opportunity to work in a studio with a producer before. And as I said, the audio program benefited the musicians equally as it did any aspiring engineer or producer, because all of these musicians got to work in the studio with a producer or you know with audio engineers who knew what they were doing and got to hear and listen and um, look at what we did in, in a very artistic way, not just as a support. So what projects? Uh, we sometimes recorded up to 20 CDs a year. It was a lot at that time. Uh, in and around all of the concert recording and, um, you know, residencies we had. Um, we did a, a, a sound and vision residency once with the director of visual arts and audio and brought in different people with different backgrounds for that who continue to go to the BAMP Center today and keep in touch. We ran a uh, training area for women in broadcasting across Canada through Course Entertainment and, um, you know, brought in hosts from NPR and CBC and different people to work with them. Uh, there's an international string quartet competition that goes on every three years at Banff. And uh, early on when I arrived there, we started uh, putting a CD together for the winners from the live events. 
and then uh, making a recording of a CD part of the prize package for the winners. And this happened again with the Honan's piano competition in, in uh, Calgary, um, where we lots of times went in and worked with them on recording their uh, the competition itself, but also providing um, a recording residency for the winners of that uh, competition and bringing in producers to work with our recording engineers or bringing in recording engineers to work with our recording engineers on some of these projects. So that, that kind of thing, um, you know, with Indigenous Arts, we put out some lovely CDs. Uh, one was um, uh, with, with completely with women's voices, Indigenous women's voices. It was just a lovely CD. It was nominated for Juno. We've had other CDs that were nominated for Juno recorded at um, Banff as well. Quite a few, one with the St. Lawrence String Quartet and the Griffin Trio, who won for a recording that um, I had the opportunity to engineer and produce. Um, yeah, so just so many things and, and, you know, research projects with McGill and with Stanford University, audio over networks, we did that kind of thing, putting on professional conferences in surround sound, uh, drawing attention, uh, to the band center as in it, not only an educational place, but, a um, a place for people to come and do residencies and, and work with, within, um, the programs we offered. Um, so is there anyone else that you would, would recommend we interview for the Sound Girls Living History Project? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned um, people from different programs. I, particularly from the Paris Conservatory, we had um, a lot of women. Amandine Pra, who you are studying with at Lethbridge now, would be great to interview. Um, Coralie Vincent who came from there as well and also did work in Canada before returning to France. Uh, I think in uh, PEI, she, she did some work there and, and in Montreal. Mireille Farr, who I met early, early on, um, who has a big uh, job as a, as a classical music producer in France. So that would be an interesting discussion. Um, Jennifer Nelson, who I brought to Bant from the Hart School, and she went on to McGill, and then she came, went to Tanglewood. She she worked with me last summer at Aspen as well. She's a very talented young woman. Liz Bellotti, who I haven't worked with yet, but I met at AES and um, accepted this summer at Aspen, but uh, program was canceled. But she has quite a unique background. Um, Poppy Crum of course, uh, neuroscientist, uh, head scientist for Dolby, who I met when she was very young at the University of Iowa when I was there. Marta Olko, who came from Poland, who then went on and did her PhD, fully funded at um, NYU, and is uh, working in immersive audio, doing great work. Marie Ebbing, who was at Banff quite a while ago and uh, did a lot of, of sound editing for Ren Kleiss, on uh, San Francisco, and um, Amanda Pietroska, I think is her name now, uh, she came from Poland and was at uh, Banff. She's now uh, one of the education chairs for AES. And um, my goodness, Tung Chen, who not only studied at Peabody, but came to Banff 
And I also accept, you know, got her to go to Aspen and work with her in 2019. She is, uh, works for Saturday Night Live, doing sound for them, music recording. And um, just a very, very interesting young woman, originally from China. I have so many names here, but I think I've given you quite a few. And uh, I, I could go after them. And any one of these women, if you ask for a list of names, they all, you know, Nancy Conforti worked with me. She just newly graduated from McGill. She worked at Aspen last summer. Very talented as well. Any of these women would give you a list of 10 other women. So what Sound Girls is doing is different than what a lot of people are doing in that they're really just putting it out there. And there's no excuse for anybody not putting women on a panel. All you have to do is click that button. And I went through and went, wow, look at, look at this. Like somebody is actually documenting this properly. Um, and yet, you know, they're going with the people they know. So I'm glad you reached out because what I've done, my work at Banff for a long time was in a bubble. Um, the international world knew audio at Banff almost more than locally because uh, just because there aren't intern paid internships, many of them, that give you that kind of experience. Um, but we need more of those. I mean, there's Stavanger in Norway. There's Banff. Interlochen has opened up again. I think that's mostly for U.S. citizens, though, same as Tanglewood. The staffing is a great opportunity for people out of school, but again, and dealing more for classical backgrounds. Uh, Aspen, the same. Uh, right now, you know, being a U.S. citizen, of course, there are tons of amazing people in the U.S., but it's nice when you can do something more internationally and draw from different programs because they learn so much from each other. But I'd like to see more of those opportunities available because it's, it's, a, it's a shared language now between music and audio and film and audio and art and audio, but such, a, such an important um, connection. So anyway, I've given you names, but those people can give you many more names. And if we keep doing this, it'll trickle down. Awesome. Can you can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the Aspen, Aspen Music Festival and the Edgar Stanton Audio Recordings? Yeah, I'm um, director of the Edgar Stanton Audio Recording Center. So for years, Aspen has been one of those really go-to places for, I think it's like 600 music students from around the world that go there. They bring in staff and faculty um, teaching to work, do master classes. The, they get to perform in a student orchestra and a combined faculty, staff, student orchestra, and then a more professional orchestra. Um, but the training ground for so many people that continue to give back and go back there, like um, Renee Fleming and, and many others. Um, a lot of people in, in the U.S. and, you know, in Europe, many musicians um, got their start at places like Aspen in the same way that Many do at Banff as well, although Banff covers more genres and, and less is, um, you know, um, less concentrated on, on orchestras and larger ensembles. And, you know, Aspen has just a really big presence for classical music and they put on about 400 events, you know, opera, recording, contemporary music, of course, some crossover with, you know, jazz and, and uh, creative music. Uh, in eight weeks in the summer. So people have to hit the ground when running, when they go there. And I've gone after people, you know, that I know from programs like Banff, McGill, Tanglewood, um, New York, Peabody, lots of places. And, and we look for people from the real world who are teaching, who are out there, who are amazing recording engineers that want the opportunity to um, 
to be able to work in a, in a group environment and record, have the chance to record people of this caliber, uh, you know, 400 events in eight weeks is a lot. There's a lot of um, scheduling. And I had really great help from, from a young woman named Sarah McCarthy, who came from San Francisco University last summer. And without her and Jennifer Nelson, I, uh, you know, scheduling was just a nightmare for that many people. And uh, they were they were incredible help and, and incredible engineers. So I've worked with such such great women everywhere I've gone. And as I said to you earlier, I think um, last my first summer, my only summer to date at Aspen, there were 11 of us, including myself, and um, six women and five men. So good numbers. Not intentionally, just happened that way. <laughs> Very good numbers. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? No, I think um, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, in today's world, I, I don't think there, there are, there are still a few glass ceilings, but there are fewer and fewer. And there are so many women um, experts as well as men, male experts. And, um, um, you know, I think we all have, you know, left and right brain, uh, different sides of our personality, and I, I think we're we're all we're all the same sometimes when it comes to uh, um, respect in audio. So um, that that women especially don't don't feel they can't do anything and and to be their own advocate. Sometimes we're really good at standing up for others, but less so when it comes to ourselves, including me. So I, I really think I would encourage everybody to be their own advocate and um, to go after what you want and not accept no as the only answer. Just look, look elsewhere and there might be a better opportunity elsewhere by, you know, not taking one road. You will succeed by taking another and, and find people who support you and what you do. That's, that's, um, that's really important versus trying to just overcome challenges, like really look for the, those who support what you do and appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say maybe about, about your experience with AES and the, and the Oh, I, I just think it's such an incredible community. And um, I had the great opportunity of someone putting my name forward early on as a, as a governor. And um, while I was governor, I, I spent a lot of time helping with education events. I was an education chair at the time, but there's, there's more, more than enough work for a lot of people, not just one chair. So I uh, helped um, develop some of the events in San Francisco and LA at some of the international conferences, went after sponsorships for prizes, um, tried to get the students more involved with a bigger role. And um, taking the students out of their area and ensuring that they went to to the main events and that there were main events put on by the education area that um, many people went to because they were just as interesting as what was happening elsewhere. Um, and the AES is is a great a great place for students and uh, audio professionals alike to be part of. Um, it really is a family. People are friendly and it's a small world at the top end in audio and you can basically get to meet whoever you like. Um, it's a really, really important organization. It has helped me immensely. And uh, 
it helped me grow the the program at Banff by by bringing in people from other programs and introducing you know that internship program to them and Aspen I mean I still have people in Europe saying when can you accept people from our program um or Canadians um but yeah, I mean, it, it's just AES is a professional organization that offers training, that offers companionship, that offers, um, you know, education at a very, very high level. And uh, you don't have to go to a convention just to be part of AES. In fact, now that it's online, I saw that many more students were entering the competition because they didn't have to show up at a convention and pay to go to New York or Europe. And so... Uh, it, it makes it much more competitive and much more fair in many ways. Mm-hmm. And they're putting on so many events right now. It's just an incredible, it's the only professional society dedicated to audio internationally, period. I mean, what more is there to say, you know, become a member. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the October conference. Oh yeah, me too. And I, I, um, I love giving names. I mean, I've been on some of those panels, but I always felt, uh, you know, I, I tend to enjoy, I mean, it's been nice to be interviewed, but I I tend to enjoy um, helping facilitate and put things together and seeing where the gaps are and, you know, putting names in there. So if there's ever anything I can do to help sound girls, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll help out with that. Thank you. Thank you I think so I much. should give back to women in audio and, uh, you know, maybe didn't help out as much, you know, by running that area early on, but I, um, I, I think I did a lot for women in audio just by making sure I had equal numbers of um, men, women, and yeah. I learned a lot about women in audio by having a, a, a student um, who, you know, I, I learned to use, um, uh, you know, when someone is transgender, like different different pronouns, they and them, and that was a, that was a real eye opener for me. It taught me a lot about. Um, about gender and our and our uh, view of, you know, there are no lines to be drawn. And uh, I think we just have to really, um, you know, I had some men in the program who were extremely humble and, and mild and, and shy and other women who were, you know, more aggressive and vice versa. I mean, so I think that, um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for just people being respectful of each other in programs like internship programs, like Banff and Aspen and and in, in university programs. I mean, a lot, I hear a lot of people say there aren't, we don't have many women, you know, maybe next year, but they really do have to have to put um, women on panels and on faculty or adjunct, you know, the more a university can bring in adjunct people, the better it is for the program. I understand funding is a problem, but yeah, there are ways to do that, even through running an AES section. That's wonderful. Thank you for adding your story to the Sound Girls Living History Project. Your story, along with the others, will be archived and made available publicly for educational use and research. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. But, um, thank you, and I wish thank you me. such good luck. Oh, thank you. I hope we keep in touch. Well, please do. Yeah, feel free to, if you're ever in Calgary, let me know. And, and, uh, yeah. yeah, I will. And, um, and good luck with your program. And you. uh, I'm, I will keep my eye out because I will expect to see and hear great things. I will do my best. No okay. guarantees, but I will do my best. <laughs>
So well, thank you. And uh, thanks for those listening. Um, yeah, a little long-winded, but it was, it's been fun to talk about. It's been just such a delight to hear about your career and, and to meet you. And uh, I'm very thankful for, for all the work you've done and, and for Sound Girls for this opportunity. Well, thank you. And thanks, Sound Girls. That's very impressive what they're doing. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast special episode of the Living History Project. To get involved in the Living History Project, or to find out more information, go to soundgirls.org. We look forward to interviewing another amazing sound human next week and hanging out some more with all you sound girls. Have a wonderful week.